your Bible called the New Testament. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 7, verse 15. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. We're going to get there in just a minute. But how many of you guys know that we're doing a series here at Thrive? It is called Take Me Higher. I want to say Take Me Higher. And this series called Take Me Higher is simply about seven struggles that we all go through in life. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your background is. If you are a living, breathing human being on this planet, then you can relate to these seven struggles that we've been talking about in this series called Take Me Higher. And in this series called Take Me Higher, what we're doing is talking about struggles that are nothing new to us because the fact is 1,500 years ago, the early Christian church identified these seven struggles as the seven deadly sins. And these seven deadly sins are not the only sins we can commit. They're not the only sins in the Bible. But these are seven of the root sins that tend to lead into problems in our lives. That tend to lead into other sins that we might commit. And we've been looking at different sins so far, different struggles that we go through. In week one, we covered envy. Everyone say envy. What envy is. Why it's so destructive. How we can overcome it. The next week, we talked about pride. Everyone say pride. Talked about what pride is and, and how you can overcome that. And then the next week, we talked about greed. Everyone say greed. Talked about what greed is, how much of a struggle it can be, whether we know it or not, and how you can overcome it. And then in week four, we looked at anger. Everyone say anger. Week five, we looked at gluttony. Everyone say gluttony. Well, what are we talking about today? Well, we've only got two left. Today, we're talking about slothfulness. Everyone say slothfulness. Next week, we're going to be talking about lust. It's going to be very, very interesting. But let's all stand as we read Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 25 this morning. Would you stand to your feet this morning and help me read God's word together? I'm going to ask our, uh, our team here to help me out as well. We're going to do this. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 25. Would you read this in a big, loud voice and help me preach in this place this morning? Read this with me right now. One, two, one, two three, it says, I don't really understand myself for what I want to do was right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the only one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, the message this morning, before you take your seats, the message this morning is called, It's Not That Easy. It's not that easy. Would you turn your neighbor, give them a high five, and along with your high five, would you give them a sigh and go, ah, it's not that easy. Could you tell them that right now? It's not that easy. It's not that easy. Would you please have your seats? Romans chapter 7 is one of the seminal passages in the New Testament talking about the very real struggle that everyone goes through, whether you're a Christian or not, the struggle with sin. And the particular struggle of sin we're talking about today is a struggle called slothfulness. Everyone say slothfulness. What is slothfulness? See, see to understand what slothfulness is, 
it helps to understand a bit more about the animal on which the word slothfulness is based. It's called the sloth. Have you ever seen a sloth before? Have you ever petted a sloth before? Well, why don't you, if you're not really sure what a sloth is, why don't you check out the short video on the sloth? Check this out right now. So that is the sloth. They say the sloth is uh, the kind of animal that defecates about once a week. That's how their metabolism works. They uh, tend to spend about 90% of their time motionless. Uh, in fact, this is not a picture. This is actually a video. I'm kidding. This is actually a picture. But they are motionless most of the time. And in fact, they say that a sloth's reaction speed is about a quarter of a human beings. Uh, and you know, in the movie Zootopia, have you ever seen the movie Zootopia before? There's a famous scene where Zootopia is about uh, a city run by animals. And there is uh, the protagonist, the hero of this movie. Her name is Officer Judy Hopps. She's a, a rabbit. And she goes into this government office because she's in a super, super rush to get some info. But it turns out, to her dismay, that all the government office workers are all sloths. And it is incredibly slow. My question for you today, anyone feel like you work with a sloth? Anyone feel like you live with a sloth? Anyone feel like you are married to a sloth? Anyone feel like you are parenting a sloth today? Anyone feel like a sloth themselves? Can I get a confession this morning? Anyone? The fact is this, what's the big deal about being a sloth? Why is it such a struggle and what can you do about it? That's what we're talking about today. See, we're going to read some verses from the Bible that talk about slothfulness. Why don't you read with me Proverbs chapter 12, verse 24. What does it say? Read it with me. It says, the hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Look three verses down to Proverbs 12, 27. What does it say? It says, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Look at Proverbs 19, 15. What does that say? It says, slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Finally, Ecclesiastes 4 verse 5. What does it say? It says, this fool sits back and takes it easy. His sloth is slow suicide. See, in the NIV, which is a translation we often look at, although we look at multiple different translations usually on a Sunday, in the NIV, instead of using the word sloth, you know what the NIV uses? It uses a couple words. It uses the lazy person, and also uses what's called the sluggard. But all these words are describing the same thing. We're talking about the sloth. Look at Proverbs 26, verse 14 together. Read, read with 1, 2, 3. It says, as a door swings back and forth on its hinges, so the lazy person turns over in bed. What a picture, right? What a picture. Is that you this morning? Oh. And it's like a door. And look at Proverbs 22, verse 13. What does it say? It says, the sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. In other words, if you're a sluggard, if you're a sloth, you will often tend to have this tendency to blame the circumstances around you and make excuses for why you shouldn't do what you need to do when actually the sloth's problem is not an external one. It's often an internal one. If you believe that, say amen. See, what is slothfulness exactly? Let me get this clear of you so you don't understand. Don't, don't misunderstand. See, slothfulness is not simply taking it easy. We all need to take it easy from time to time. Slothfulness is not just being easygoing. I love easygoing people, amen? But slothfulness is also not being physically slow. Uh, but this, this is what, what it means to be slothful. Write this down. This is the best and simplest definition I can give you of the biblical concept for a sloth. Why do write this down? Slothfulness is knowing the right thing to do, but being slow to do it. It's knowing what you need to do, 
but you're slow to do it. See, slothfulness is not simply being slow. It's being slow to get on with the most important things in life, often because we're distracted by easier, less important things. Slothfulness is not so much a physical condition as it is a spiritual one. It's like a kind of attitude toward the most important things in life. Maybe you're here today and you know already this is a problem for me. Maybe you think to yourself, yeah, I can totally relate. Maybe you're here and it's the month of November, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I find that November feels naturally like a bit of a blah time. Has ever felt that before? Is that, you know, the weather is changing, it's colder, you hardly see the sun, it was raining super hard, and, and you just kind of, you don't really, and you're, and you're just kind of like, oh, and, and, and you feel like, you know, you're just like, oh my goodness, there's, there's almost like gravity that's weighing you down more than usual. And, and I believe this, is that if you feel that way today, then I think this message is going to be helpful for you this morning. Maybe you're here and you would consider yourself not to be a sloth. You consider yourself to be actually a very, very hardworking person. You think to yourself, you know what, working hard is not my problem. If anything, my problem is working too hard. If that's you, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope today that this message causes you to rethink the impact that slothfulness actually has on your life. And so let's start by talking about some clues that maybe, just maybe, you struggle with slothfulness. And I'm going to encourage you to, to, to give yourself a point each time you relate to any one of these clues. Are you guys ready? You guys ready? Here we go. Number one, clue number one that you might struggle with slothfulness. You are a master at procrastination. You tend to put things off to the very, very last minute. If that's you, give yourself a point. Number two, you find that you waste a lot of time on social media and entertainment at the expense of doing more important things. Maybe, you know, the stove caught on fire because you're so busy looking at Instagram. Or, or maybe you forgot to pick up your kids because you were just busy playing your video games. Has that happened to you before? If that's you, then give yourself a point. Clue number three, you often settle for giving a mediocre, uh, mediocre effort in Instead of giving your best, instead, instead of giving your best, whether it's at work or at home, is that you just tend to kind of mail it in sometimes. And you kind of give this half-hearted effort because you just don't really feel like giving everything you got. Number four is you have the habit of being late, missing deadlines, and neglecting your responsibilities. Anyone have the habit of being late in this place? Working on that? Maybe that's you. Give yourself a point. Number five, your workplace or your living space is a mess is that you go there and it's like a war zone and people kind of have to you know, wear gloves and, and they have to wear like a mask and they have to kind of go through your stuff because it's a bit of a mess. Number six, you have little motivation to do the things you know you should do. Kind of like what we read in Romans chapter seven is what I want to do, what I really deep down want to do, the right thing to do, I don't do that. Instead, if I've got any motivation at all, I feel motivated to do the things that I shouldn't do. And because of that, you feel just kind of like blah about life. Life for you is kind of losing purpose and hope. You find that you start to care less. You're a bit numb to the hurts around you, the needs of the people around you, the injustice that you see around the world. You're just like, oh, whatever, because you're just kind of in this blah state of mind. If that's you, give yourself a point. Number seven, you're often giving excuses for why something can't be done. Is that you? Is that you? Look at Proverbs 15, 19. Read it with me, big loud voice. One, two, three. It says, the way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. What does that mean? What does that mean? In other words, if you're a sloth, you have this tendency to look for excuses and reasons why something can't be done. And so it's like your, your road ahead is full of thorns. It's paved with thorns. It's blocked with thorns. But if you're someone who doesn't struggle with slothfulness, you'll find, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm going to find away, it's a highway to my destiny. See, which one you do relate to more? Before we go any further, how are you guys doing so far? How many points do you have so far? Any idea? 
Anyone have seven points so far? Six points so far? Uh, eight points? We only went through seven points, but the fact is we maybe have eight. The fact is this, is before we go any further, let me just address something that maybe you are thinking right now. You might be, well, JB, these clues don't apply to me. I've got zero points right now. I've got one point right now. I'm not a lazy person. See, I'm, slothfulness is not my problem. Maybe you're a superstar in your company, and you are the hardest working person in your organization, or you're a superstar when it comes to your studies. Let me ask you this question. Is slothfulness the same thing as laziness? Well, not exactly. Not exactly. See, the biblical concept of a sloth is not necessarily someone who just sits on their couch or lies in their bed and watches Netflix and eats potato chips all day. That's not necessarily the concept of a sloth. Is that you could actually be a very, very hardworking person, and you might actually spend a great deal of energy bustling from here to there doing all these things, but what makes you a sloth is that you spend all your energy on things that are less important, things that don't matter as much. For example, there's a, there's a story in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus, he is invited to the house of Mary and Martha, their two sisters, and Martha is known as the busybody. She's running around doing all these things. She's upset and worried about all these different things, trying to host everybody. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and just listening to everything he has to say, taking notes on her iPad and just going, tell me more. And, and, and Jesus says to Martha, you need to choose what is better. And, and the fact is this, is that we might not think of it this way, but the Bible's definition of a sloth applies to Martha is that Martha was so busy spending so much energy on less important things that she missed what was most important. Are you a sloth today? See, sometimes sloths will get so busy with the stuff in their life that they miss the most important thing. Sometimes sloth will actually get themselves so busy as a way of avoiding facing the reality of their lives or the ugliness that they see, so they just get themselves really, really busy. And so with that in mind, let me give you the last few clues that maybe you might struggle with slothfulness. Clue number eight, you're so busy with work, studies, or hobbies that you ignore the most important relationship in your life. If that applies to you, then you might very well have an issue with, with being a sloth. For example, you spend all your week at work, or you spend all your week you know, in school, and you know, you're burning the midnight oil studying and all that stuff, and you come home and people are like, who are you? I've never seen you before. Or, or you, maybe it's one of those things where you, you touch your golf clubs more than you, you, know, you, well, then you spend time with your family. Is that you're so much into the stuff outside your home that you're not really focused on the people in your home. You maybe are so good to your clients, so polite to people at work, so polite and, and respectful and courteous to the people around you. But when it comes to your own home, you're kind of rude. You kind of take them for granted. Or maybe you're the kind of person who you're a parent. You're so focused on your kids that they're like the number one, number one, number one priority in your life, but then you're ignoring your spouse and kind of letting them sit there by themselves. If that's you, then there is a good argument to say that maybe, just maybe, you struggle with slothfulness. Maybe you're someone who's so focused on your friends that you ignore your family. If that's you, then slothfulness may apply to you. Is that you? Turn to me and say, is that you? Is that you? Yeah. That's clue number eight. Clue number nine. Write this down. Instead of doing the hard work that relationships inevitably require, you prefer to distract yourself with something or someone easier. What does that mean? 
is that, for example, instead of talking things out with your spouse when you have a conflict, you guys will just kind of stay in your own corners of the house, as far away from each other as possible. You don't talk about it. You don't try to work it out. You just kind of give each other the silent treatment for the next two, three days. And you don't really talk about it. Instead of doing the hard work of reconciling, instead of doing the hard work of apologizing or forgiving or just at least talking things out, it's just easier to just do our own thing. It's just easier to just not say anything at all. Or maybe instead of talking about the problems in, for example, your intimacy life, your sex life. Instead of talking about that with your spouse, you're just finding, you know, it's just easier for me to look at porn. Or it's just easy for me to flirt with the girl next door. If that's you, slothfulness is an issue for you. Instead of maybe going through the process of forgiving that person who hurt you, you just find, oh, it's just easier if I hold a grudge. See, we don't necessarily say those things out loud, but a lot of times that's what we're thinking. It's just easier that way. See, in the short term, it might feel easier, but actually, it's not that easy. Turn to me and say, it's not that easy. Because in the long run, a sloth lives a life where you play now and you pay much more later. It makes life a very difficult life to lead. If you you believe it, say amen. Number 10, clue number 10. Despite being taught, that you can't grow spiritually without certain spiritual habits or what we call spiritual disciplines, Bible study, prayer, you know, going to church, serving in church, you know, sharing your faith. You still, after all this time, have not developed those habits, have kind of still just relied on your feelings when you come to church. And if that's you, then you'll find that that causes, your slothfulness causes you to stay stagnant in your relationship with God. It's not because of anyone else's fault. It's simply because you've never taken responsibility for your own relationship with God. If that's you, give yourself a point. Number 11, clue number 11, you often back out of commitments and relationships when things get hard. It's happened to you before. You know, sloths tend to be escape artists is that they're really excited when something starts, a new relationship, they go to a new company, they go, they go to a new church, everything's so fresh and exciting and fun, and, 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 and it's like this honeymoon period. But when things start to get tough, when they start to get a little bit bored, when they start to get, take things a little bit more for granted, they're like, oh, I don't know if this is for me. And they abandon ship. That's what sloths do, is that the first instinct of a sloth is to escape. Oh, this is hard. Let me escape to something that's easier. And that's what they'll do. So they'll jump from, you know, boyfriend to boyfriend, girlfriend to girlfriend, you know, company to company, church to church. Because it's not because there's something wrong with those places or people, but more because they're just so used to escaping when the things get hard. If that's you, give yourself a point. Number 12, last clue. Instead of valuing God and the people in your life, you tend to take them for granted. You're not as polite as you used to be. You kind of, you know, you're not as respectful or as intentional in your relationships as you used to be. Before you were a gentleman, now you come across as rude. Before you were thoughtful and considerate, now you're just like, oh, whatever. See, if any of these these clues applies to you, then it might well indicate that you have an issue with slothfulness. What are some of the problems that slothfulness causes? Let's just go through one of them, a few of them really quick. Number one, write this down. Slothfulness leads to poverty. See, here's the thing. There are many different roads to poverty, but slothfulness is definitely one of them. Look at Proverbs 24, 30 to 34. Read with me in a big, loud voice. One, two, three, it says, I went past the field of the sluggard, past the vineyard of the man who lacks judgment. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed, and I learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like 
like an armed man. Don't get me wrong. Today, the, the goal of this message is not to turn you into a workaholic, where it's all now about work, 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 work. No, we are called to be people who work hard and who rest well. Amen. But see, here's the thing, is that slothfulness leads to poverty. In fact, when you read about slothfulness in the Bible, you'll find that over and over, the Bible makes this connection between slothfulness and poverty. Not just financial poverty, but poverty in all areas of life. For example, write this down. Slothfulness causes you to waste the resources and opportunities that God gives to you. There's a a story that Jesus tells about this, uh, this master who gives talents to three of his servants. Two of those servants take those talents and right away they put them to work and they gain five or two more respectively. They did something with what they were given. They did something with the resources and opportunities that they were given. But then there was a third servant who just took the talent that was given to him and what did he do? He just burdened the ground. And when it was finally time to bring an account to his master, he said, I was scared. Here's your talent back. And you know what you know, the master says back to the servant? He says, you wicked and slothful servant. Is that you took for granted what I gave you and you wasted it. Look at Proverbs 18.9 with me. What does it say? It says, he also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. If you are slothful, very likely you are wasting things. Things that God has given to you. They are rotting even in your hand as we speak. Proverbs 12, 27, what does it say? It says, the lazy man does not roast his game, but the diligent man prizes his possessions. In fact, you're going to find that the opposite of laziness or the opposite of slothfulness is diligence. Diligence meaning that I, 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 I give the right amount of energy to the right kind of things. In fact, you know that the word diligent in Latin, the original word diligence comes from the Latin word for to love is that you do things out of love, and because you love, you give your energy in the right amounts to the right things. But slothfulness doesn't care about that. There's another problem about slothfulness. Slothfulness destroys your relationships. See, look at Ecclesiastes 10, verse 18. Read it with a big, loud voice. One, two, three, it says, Laziness leads to a sagging roof. Idleness leads to a leaky house. Ever had a sagging roof before? Ever had a leaky house before? Here's what one marriage counselor wrote about the impact that slothfulness can have on relationships, specifically on marriage. He says this. He says, as a counselor, I have found laziness to be the major cause for the failure of marriages. Time and time again, I've observed that the parties involved in marital disputes have known exactly what was needed to restore the relationship, but were unwilling to put forth the effort. In almost every case, those whose marriages failed simply were too lazy to do what was necessary to make their marital relationship work. And, and, he, and he starts talking about how there's this one man that he was counseling who his wife was practically going to leave him because he spent all his time in sports. All his time, watching sports, playing sports, and that was all that he did to the point where he completely ignored his life at home, completely ignored his wife. His wife wanted to leave him. And so this, this, this guy, this husband, he goes to this pastor and he says, hey, can you help me? What should I do? And the pastor says, well, you got to rearrange your priorities. you got to stop spending so much time in sports. you got to spend more time with your wife. And, you know, after thinking about it, the husband said what? He said what? He said, you know what? I want my wife back, but I don't want her back that much. And so he walked away. And, and the fact is this, is that for some of us, our slothfulness, us focusing on the wrong lesser thing, causes us to lose the most important relationships in life. That's one of the problems that comes from slothfulness. Here's another one. Slothfulness is a sin that separates you from God. 
is that slothfulness isn't just a personal weakness. It's not just a bad habit. Slothfulness is a sin that separates us from God. The word sin is a term in archery where you've got a target, there's a bullseye. If I miss that target by an inch, a millimeter, or a mile, that is called sin. And the Bible says that slothfulness is sin. It's deviating from God's best, deviating from God's perfect standard for our lives. And the Bible says that because of sin, including our slothfulness, we can't have anything to do with God. Look at James chapter 4, verse 17. What does it say? It says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Wow. How many of us know that sin is not just what we do? It's actually sometimes what we don't do. It's a sin of not just commission, but a sin of omission. Evangelist Billy Graham, he once said, you know, you don't have to do anything to be lost. Just be slothful about your soul. Just do nothing, and you'll be lost. See, the thing is this, is that Jesus Christ, he came, he died on the cross for our sins. When we had no way of reaching God because of our sins, Jesus came. He died so that we could be forgiven, and he gives us that forgiveness as an expensive, free gift to each one of us. But even for every one of us, we need to do something with it. We need to open that gift. We need to not be slothful, but we need to respond to that gift. If we just sit there slothfully and ignore it, nothing's going to happen, and we'll remain lost and separated from God. If you believe us, say amen. Not just that. Slothfulness stops your spiritual growth. Is that for as long as you are controlled by slothfulness, you will not grow in your relationship with God. It doesn't matter how well the pastor preaches. It doesn't matter how good the church you go to is. If you on your, on, on your own have this internal issue of slothfulness, you will not grow no matter what anyone else does. It's because slothfulness stops your spiritual growth. Look at Romans 12, 11. What does it say? It says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Hebrews 6.12, what does it say? It says, we do not want to become, you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Finally, last problem that slothfulness creates is that slothful, slothfulness sucks the joy out of life. Don't you find that? You know, let, let me just show you a picture of a sloth one more time. Look at this. Isn't that a cute cloth? That's so cute. You know, the more and more I've been researching sloth, the animal sloth, I'm like, man, they're really cute. They're really, really cute. But, but here's the thing, is that, you know, is that, if I ask this, does he look frustrated to you? Does he look angry or just unhappy to you? No, he looks pretty happy. He looks really happy. And, and do you think he's going, why am I so slow? Do you think he's thinking that? No, he's not. Slow is all he'll ever know, and he's okay. I poo once a week. That's all right. You know, I, 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 have, I, I have, you know, a month worth of, of digestion, one meal. That's okay. He's okay. But that's, he's a sloth. He's meant to be that way. But see, when we act as sloths, you know, we're, we're our, the, the result is not we are okay, we're content, we're happy. No, much the opposite. Because we were never meant to be sloths. The result is we are frustrated. We are eventually depressed. Because we keep on trying to find happiness by escaping. We keep on trying to find happiness by evading. We keep on trying to find happiness by these quick fixes and these shortcuts instead of doing the hard work of being loving. And as a result, we cut ourselves off from the ultimate happiness and peace that God made for us. If you believe us, say amen. See, sloths begin as escape artists who just keep on escaping their problems, and eventually when they realize they can't escape much longer because they can't escape themselves, they end up depressed. 
they end up feeling hopeless. Is that well, there's like this deadness of their soul where they feel like I'm existing, I'm not really living. See, that's the thing about slothfulness is that it sucks the joy out of life. What can you do if you and I struggle with something called slothfulness? Let me end today by giving you two or three solutions that the Bible gives for slothfulness. How do you overcome slothfulness? Here we go. Number one, practice doing the right thing even when you don't feel like it. Even when you don't feel like it. See, Maxie Dunham and Kimberly Dunham Reisman, they are two authors who have taught hundreds of couples through extremely difficult marital issues. And this is what they wrote. I really like what they wrote. In fact, I'll show you a quote here. What does it say? It says, sometimes marriage or other friendships feel euphoric and energizing. Other times they're tedious, empty, wearing routines, or just plain work. The point is that being committed to any love relationship takes daily nurturing, daily effort, and daily practices that build it up. Neglecting these will slowly break the relationship down. There's another one where they write, and, then, and I don't know if we're off of the screen, but they write this. They say, persons contemplating divorce will say, there's just no love there. there the feelings are gone. The life has gone out of the relationship. The prescription for that state of relationship is simple and guarantees a high level of cure. Love as an act of the will. Decide to love and start acting as though you feel love. Do those things that would express your love as if you were in love. We've seen divorces abandoned and marriages restored by couples who are willing to give this prescription a legitimate effort. In fact, we've never seen it fail when both, gen both persons genuinely committed themselves to the process. But tragically, we've seen scores of couples move on to divorce courts because they were too lazy to do the essential work. What are they saying? Is that for a marriage where the two people are on the verge of divorce, you know what marriage, marriage couples, marriage counselors will tend to tell these couples? Is they'll say, okay, we know you don't feel anything right now. I want to encourage you to do this. Love the person as if you feel something. Love the person as if you're in love. Say, I love you anyways. Be nice to that person anyways. Serve that person anyways. Write notes to that person anyways. Even though the last thing you want to do is to touch them, give them a foot massage from time to time, even if you don't feel like it. And why is that? It's because something happens when we decide, I'm going to do the right thing, even though I don't feel like it. Is that love begins to grow in between the relationship and in our hearts as well. If you believe us, say amen. And see, this is the thing. I've, I was amazed. I was looking at all these different researchers on marriage and marriage counselors and what they had to say. And over and over, it was the same advice. It's that if you are going through a marital crisis today and things are not the way they used to be, you know what you want to do? Love that person intentionally. Do the right thing even if you don't feel like it. And see, here's the thing. You might be, but JB, I don't want to be fake. I don't want to pretend. You're not pretending. What you're doing is you're choosing to do the right thing and the loving thing with a selfless attitude. That is called faith. That is called maturity. That's a whole lot different from pretending. Amen. Let me give you another example. Sometimes we're here in church, and on a Sunday morning, we're singing these songs. And, you know, no matter how the band is playing, and often they're playing very, very well, there, there are times when I don't feel like lifting my hands. 
I, I, don't, I don't feel like, you know, I'm going to lift my, but you know what I do? Is that you, you see me in front, I will intentionally, regardless of how I feel, I'll just lift my hands and worship this way. And why is that? It's because I'm trying to do the right thing even though I don't feel like it. It's, is that because Psalm 134 says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. And so I, pray, I, I lift up my hands not because I feel like lifting up my hands. I lift up my hands because God is worthy. I lift up my hands because he deserves the praise. And it's not dependent on how I feel. God is worthy from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, irregardless of my feelings. Amen. Come on, give God a big, big hand here in this place if you believe that right now. And, and a, a crazy, funny thing happens is that I might not have felt it at the moment when I was saying, okay, I'm going to lift my hands. I didn't feel it. It wasn't the feeling that led me to lift up my hands. But after I lift up my hands, all of a sudden the feelings come. All of a sudden, the feelings of love come and they start to overwhelm me. It's because that's the problem with us. We think so much about our feelings, but it's not just feelings. See, love is so much more than feelings. Sloths have this warped idea of what love is. They think that love is nothing more than the feeling, and they buy into the message that Hollywood preaches. They buy into the message that pop songs sing about, which is that love is almost like an accident. It's beyond your control. When the love is gone, time to move on. And see, here's the thing. Love is so much more than feelings. I'm not saying that your feelings are not important. They're just not all important. Doing the right thing is more important than how you feel. Doing the honoring thing to God is more important than how you feel. Doing the thing that is loving is more important than how you feel. And so when you do, and the crazy thing is when you do the right thing, even when you don't feel like it, don't be surprised when the right feelings start to follow your right action. If you believe us, say amen. Can you think of a time, for example, when you did the right thing, though you didn't feel like it, but then later on you were glad you did? That happened to you before? You didn't particularly feel like being nice to that person, but you decided, I'm going to be nice to that person anyways. And, oh, man, you, you guys hit it off, and you had a great conversation as a result. You didn't, you didn't feel like serving that person, but you did anyways, and as a result, the relationship got stronger. You know, has it happened to you before? You know, it's, it's the birthday of someone important in your life. You may not feel like writing a card, but in an act of faith, in an act of love, you just decide, regardless of how you feel, I'm just going to love this person by writing them an encouraging note. I'm just going to love this person by writing some words of appreciation. And as you sit there, as you think about that person, as you maybe look at some pictures on your phone of you and that person together, all of a sudden you get a bit emotional. All of a sudden, you start to miss that person. All of a sudden, you start to really think, man, I'm so blessed to have that person in my life. Has that happened to you before? And, and what changed? The person didn't change in those five minutes. No, that person didn't change in, 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 in any way. What changed was your focus. What changed was your attitude. What changed was you decided instead of following my feelings, I'm going to do the right thing regardless of what I feel, and the feelings followed after that. If you believe that, say Amen. And see, what do I learn from that? Is that we don't just act based on how we feel. We also feel based on how we act. A lot of times we think, oh yeah, you know, because I feel this way, therefore I act this way. You know, that's true. A lot of times that happens. But the opposite is also true. Oftentimes we act and based on our actions, we start to feel. And so what's the lesson there? Do the right thing with the right attitude and often the right feelings will follow. Amen. Maybe ask this question today. What is one important thing that you need to start doing as an act of your will and choosing a good attitude? Not kind of like, here's your dinner. 
but or like you know, here's your foot rub. But 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 it's but you you do it with a right attitude. You do the right thing. What is one important thing that you can do that is the right thing to do? You do it with a good attitude rather than just waiting till you feel like it. Is there is there something like that in a relationship today? All this time you're waiting for the feeling. Well, maybe God is saying to you, stop worshiping your feelings and worship me. Grow up in your character. Grow up in your faith. Realize that love is so much more than feelings. Turn your neighbor and say, love is so much more than feelings. And when you do that, when you practice doing the right thing regardless of how you feel, you know what happens? Great things happen. We grow up as people. We mature as followers of Jesus. The relationship improves. We become not mastered by our feelings. We become the master of our feelings. Our self-discipline increases. Our desires even start to change. Because before, our autopilot was always how I feel. Do I feel like it? Do I feel like it? And our feelings just kind of lead us astray. Now, our autopilot is no longer our feelings. Our autopilot is now do the right thing. The feelings will come after it. And all of a sudden, you're going to find that, you know, just like trying a new food that, that grows on you over time. Like, hmm, that's kind of strange. Oh, oh, I actually kind of like it. Oh, I, I'm actually craving it now. You know what's going to happen is that when you practice doing the right thing, even when you don't feel like it, you're going to want to do that more and more and more. It's become easier for you. Your relationships will improve. Your character will grow. Your reputation and your credibility will increase. And you glorify God and give him a good name in the process. Come on, if you believe that, give God a big, big hand here in this place right now. Amen. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 26 to 27 right now. Read it with me. It says, Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Look at verse 27. Why don't you underline these words? No, I beat my body and make it my slave. See, what, what is Paul saying? Is he literally saying that he's getting a whip and he's like, flagellating himself this way he's like ah oh, i beat myself i hit myself i don't know no what he's saying he's talking about this. he's saying i'm not going to let my feelings master me i'm going to master my feelings i'm going to do the right thing even when i don't feel like it and so i'm going to be like feelings follow me i'm doing this way this is the right way to go feelings come with me and you go and you know what your feelings which are a little bit more unstable What's kind of come and go, up and down all the time. You know what? They're like, okay, okay. And then we'll go, and they go, and they go, and they go. And sometimes, sometimes, if you do it long enough, you're going to find that when you start, you keep practicing doing, I'm going to do the right thing, feelings, let's go. You're going to find that sometimes if you do it long enough, your feelings will not just catch up. Sometimes they'll even go ahead. And they're actually going to go ahead of you before you even know it. And you're starting to go in a direction where your autopilot is saying, do the right thing. And it's no longer dependent on your feelings. If you believe that, give God a big, big hand in this place right now. Amen. <laughs> Practice doing the right thing, even when you don't feel like it. It might sound crazy, but it works. It might sound idiotic, but it works. It might sound so unnatural, but guess what? That's the life of faith, and it works. Dreamer say, it works. It works. Where, what is one area of your life today, maybe one relationship of your life today, where you need to practice doing the right thing regardless of how you feel? When you do that, you're going to find that your slothfulness is going away and you're starting to do the right thing even when you're not even sure you're doing it. Praise God. Number one is that. Number two, write this down. Is this helpful in this place so far? Number two, write this down. Pounce on even the slightest motivation to do the right thing. 
pounce on even the slightest motivation to do the right thing. See, I'm still really immature in a lot of ways. You know, just, just look at some of the things that I do. I'm still pretty immature in so many ways. But so much of my growth as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as a man, as a husband, as a father, has been on the basis of this principle. Is that some of the most powerful, most teachable, even most romantic moments of my life happen when I will decide I'm going to pounce on even the slightest motivation to do something good. See, a lot of us, we, we have this tendency to want to wait until the big feeling comes. I'm going to wait until some, like, God hits me from heaven with a hammer, and then I'll go to church. Or I'm going to wait until God hits me with a hammer, and then I'll get baptized. It's like we're waiting for this huge feeling, and depending on the feeling, and see, here's the thing, is that God doesn't always work that way. God works in whispers. It's a still, small voice. You know, I remember I was in first year UBC, and... Uh, this is, wow, last century already, praise God. Last century, and I, I, I remember I'm in first year UBC, studying in the arts program there. And remember, I, I had a parking pass, I was fortunate to have a parking pass, in Rose Garden Parkade. And uh, I was there, it was right by, by the building where I spent most of my time, and, uh, and, and I, I, was, I was in that, uh, that, that parkade every day. And I can remember this really clearly. After class, I get into the car. And right as I'm putting my keys into the ignition, I'm about to turn the car on and go home. I'll have not a huge feeling, but just the faintest, faintest, slightest inclination. Say, you know what? Maybe I should just spend time and read my Bible right now. Maybe just spend time and, and just spend time with God right now. And then I'll be like, okay. I'll turn the ignition off. I'll take the keys out. And I'll just grab my Bible, which I had in my seat. And I'll just start to read it. And, and you know, sometimes I'll just, I'll just read for five minutes. I'll just read for five minutes. And you know, so often, I find myself, I'm, 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 I'm reading, and because I responded to this even slightest motivation to do something good, I discover amazing things in God's word that change my life. I discover amazing things in God's word that speak directly to the situation that I'm going through. And, and what was that? It was just a baby step. Where I'm, okay, I'm just going to take five minutes to read God's word. And that would turn off into 40 minutes or 50 minutes or an hour. And thank God my parking class wasn't based on time because I, I, it's one of the things where sometimes I'd be out and I'd be, I'd be, I'd be leaving, the, leaving the parkade much, much later than I originally thought. And see, there are so many places where I can point to, and that was a good place where I spent time with God. But you know, when, I, when I look at Rose Garden Park Parkade, it always has nice feelings for me. Even though it's all cement, it's just like, oh, there's, there's a nice feeling there. Because it was, I felt like there was where I fell in love with the Holy Spirit. And, and it was one of those things where it's just pouncing on the slightest motivation to do the right thing. You know, you know I, I remember like, you know, even just in the past little past month, you know, it's been a busy time here at the church. It's been really, really busy. And, and every day, sometimes I walk out the door. And I, I'd, I'd sometimes forget to say goodbye. And I, I just kind of keep, because I'm so into my thoughts. And, and, but, there, but lately I find this, is that there are times when I'll walk out the door. And I've locked the door. I say, okay, bye, I'm going now. Lock the door. I'm getting to the car. And all of a sudden I'll get the slightest motivation, the slightest idea to say, why don't you go and kiss your wife goodbye? Why don't you go and say goodbye and give your, your son a kiss? And I'll, I'll be like, okay, I'll go back in. I unlock the door. I go in. And it's a little bit weird because I've already left. They've always said goodbye. I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to give you a kiss. Goodbye. Oh, okay, bye, Caleb. I'll see you later. Maybe take a selfie this way. I'll see you later. And we go. And we go. And, and, and you know what? I find this is that some people might think that's really weird. But I think that's kind of romantic. Amen? 
To me, that's how the relationship, it's those little things that build the relationship. And I've got still so much to learn in that area. I forget a lot more than I remember. But the fact is that when we pounce on even the slightest motivation to do the right thing, good things happen when it's from the Holy Spirit. Amen. Look at Psalm 32, 8 to 10 with me. What does it say? It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Would you go back to verse 8? It says this. This is the Holy Spirit talking. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. And you know the way that he instructs you? It's not through a go now and everybody hears it. It's not through a hammer from heaven. Very often, it's a still, small voice that if you're not careful, you could even miss. That's the Holy Spirit. And see, verse 9 says, Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. In other words, don't be the kind of person, don't be a sloth who has to be dragged into church, who has to be dragged into doing what God wants you to do because you have no more choice anymore. Don't be that kind of immature sloth. Instead, you want to be someone who pounces on even the slightest gesture, the slightest nudge from the Holy Spirit to do the right thing. If you believe that, say amen. Don't wait for the hammer from heaven. Don't wait for that big overwhelming feeling. The Holy Spirit lives in you to speak to you and to guide you into all truth and to do the things that Jesus wants you to do, but he whispers it with a still small voice. And if you will take even that slightest, faintest motivation and say, I'm gonna pounce on it, I'm gonna act on it, great things are gonna happen in your life and your relationships. If you believe that, give God a big, big hand here in this place right now. Amen. Last point, we're going to close. If you're someone who struggles with slothfulness, so much more I want to tell you today, but let's be, let me end with this. Look to Jesus Christ for help. Look to Jesus Christ for help. See, the thing about sin is this. In Romans 7, the very first passage we talked about, it talks so much about it, is that we can't help ourselves. You know, even as Christians who've received Jesus Christ as our Savior, who believe that he died on the cross for our sins, for the day, for, until the day we see Jesus in heaven, we will struggle with slothfulness. We will struggle with sin, and we can't do it on our own. We need the help of someone greater than us. Look at Psalm 15, 1 to 5. It says this. It says, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary, who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. See, what, what is Psalm 15 talking about? Psalm 15 is talking about what does it take to be in heaven with God? What does it take to have a relationship with God? And Psalm 15 says it really clearly. You have to be blameless. You have to do everything in a righteous way. You have to speak the truth from your heart, have never spoken a single slanderous word on your tongue, never done your neighbor any wrong, never cast a slur on your fellow man, never despised anyone, never hated anyone. You just honor people all the time. You keep your promises all the time. Who can say that we've done that? None of us can. Not a single one of us can. But I'm here to tell you today, Psalm 15, where it talks about the man who's able to be in heaven with God. He's not talking about us. He's talking about Jesus. 
Jesus is the one whose walk is blameless. Jesus is the one who does what is righteous. Jesus is the one who speaks the truth from his heart, who doesn't slander anyone, who didn't do his neighbor any wrong, who doesn't despise a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. And I love that part. When it says he keeps his oath even when it hurts. You know what Jesus, he always knew, he always knew when he came to earth that his life was not to be something where other people were going to serve him, but he was going to come as a servant. He said, the, the Son of Man has come not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew from the very beginning that his destiny was to die on the cross for our sins. That was his commitment. That was his mission. That was his reason for being on this earth. And he was committed like anything to it. Even when other people would say, no, no, may this ever happen to you, he would say, no, I'm doing it. And yet, on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is stressed out of his mind. He's dropping blood, sweat from his body, and, and, and he is so stressed because he doesn't want to go ahead with it. He, he's, he's, he feels differently now. He says, Father, if it is possible, please take this cup of suffering away from me, but not my will, but yours be done. In other words, even when he didn't feel it anymore, even when it wasn't sexy anymore to think of it that way, even when he didn't want to be the hero anymore, he said, I'm going to do the right thing even if I don't feel like it. Not by will, but yours be done. I'm going to keep my oath even if it hurts. And did it hurt? Ah, yeah, it hurt. It hurt like anything, nothing you've ever experienced, nothing I've ever experienced. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He went to the cross keeping his oath even when it hurt so that we could be brought back to God so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could have a relationship with God once again. When our own sins separated us from God, Jesus brought us near. Oh, come on, give Jesus a big, big hand here in this place right now. Jesus did the right thing, even when he didn't feel it, even when it wasn't that easy. It wasn't that easy. It wasn't easy at all. But he did it anyways, because that's love. Love is so much more than feelings. Love is doing the right thing, even when we don't always feel it. It's about saying, I'm going to love you through thick and thin. I'm going to love you when the sun is shining. I'm going to love you when the sun is not shining. I'm going to love you when you're difficult. I'm going to love you when you're at your best. I'm going to love you through all of your moods. I'm that way. That's love from God. That's who he is, and he calls us to be the same. He calls us to be people who aren't worshipers of our feelings, but worshipers of the one who's the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, come on, give Jesus a big hand, a big shout in this place right now. Let's all stand to our feet.